You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, a longtime MMA journalist, novelist, and podcaster. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, the folks on the live stream can see that we're here in our new digs. That's right. Well, we're in your new house. I I wish I could say we were in a dedicated podcasting space slash weapons room, but we're not. Not yet. Not yet. I assume that the people listening to the audio only version of the podcast will be able to hear the different acoustics. Yeah. Because we're still, we're still sitting at my dining room table, still in the dining room, the new dining room. The ceiling in here is much higher. Yeah. So there's a little extra added natural reverb that I think is going to put our production over the top. Like podcasting from a cave. The man cave. Don't, don't do that. Yeah, we're not, we're not going to do that. It's more expansive space in here, though. Yeah, a lot more space. As you know, uh, my wife and I procreated like there was no tomorrow, which is... Gross. Uh, Gross. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a lot different now that we know that maybe there is no tomorrow, having all these kids. <laughs> yeah. But uh, at the same time, what are you going to do? We got three kids. We needed to move into a bigger house. Everyone's going to be able to have their own bedrooms here. I'm going to be able to have an office after years of having given my office to a baby over at the other house. And... Uh, I don't, it's still not out of the question that the co-main event podcast is going to get a dedicated podcasting space out of this. Slash weapons room. Here's Slash what we need. weapons room. How about maybe as Patreon content, patreon.com slash co-main event, you and I, we become IRL streamers while we go shopping for weapons. Hit up a couple pawn shots, you know, see what we can come up with. I already got some nunchucks, so don't worry. Yeah, we're, we're covered there. there. Maybe we drive out to the 50000 silver dollar, buy some swords. Yep. Now, see, that would be... That would be good content. Road trip to the 50,000 silver dollar bar for the co-main event podcast. Yeah. Maybe come home with some, some weapons, some new weapons. Maybe some throwing stars, something like that. Here is the one thing that makes me feel less than bullish about the weapons room. Is it all the weapons? It's the aforementioned children. Okay. And their proximity to all the weapons. Because I will tell you right now, I got a couple of them that are going to be naturally attracted to those weapons. And yet they lack the sense to know how to handle the weapons. Isn't it better that they learn it here rather than on the streets? Don't you want them to learn how to use a mace or a a set of nunchucks under the watchful eye of their own parents rather than just out there from a, from a street Viking? See what you're telling me right now, you're turning me into that parent that ends up going to jail because they buy beer for their underage kids. Because the philosophy is, well, if they're going to be drinking, I'd rather have them do it here under my supervision yeah. than out in the streets. Mm-hmm. Except you're doing it with like broadswords. Yeah. I don't, I still, I'm waiting to hear the problem here and I'm not hearing it. There's a certain logic to it. I just guarantee you that uh, if we bring broadswords into this house, someone is going to get chopped in half really fast. Wow. It would take. Uh, you were just complaining about having too many kids. That's all I'm saying. Okay. That's all well, I'm now, saying. Now you're starting to make valuable points. And maybe it turns into a thing where every once in a while we just show up to check the CME PO box and there's a hatchet in there. That is Who another uh, 
eventuality that I would like to avoid, given some that we are, are, we've already been put on notice by the U.S. Postal Service. <laughs> a padded envelope with some brass knucks in there. See, don't, don't send us any weapons, folks, please. Remember, if you want to support the show, we got Cowboy Astronaut cigarettes t-shirts and Dundasso t-shirts available all the time, whenever you want them, on demand, over at CottonBureau.com. Just go over to CottonBureau.com today and pick up some CME merchandise. Ben, it turned out to be a pretty wild weekend in mixed martial arts. It really did. With Bellator and the UFC going head-to-head. Just a, a, a variety of, of good fights and some wild finishes and some unexpected turns of events and, frankly, some very sadly expected turn, turns of events as well. So we got a lot to talk about this week. We really do. And so much to talk about. We felt we couldn't do it under our normal format. Yeah, this to break is, free. This is like the opposite of an ain't shit going on week. This is when there's too much shit going on that we can't cram it into the three rounds that we normally do on the podcast. So what we're going to do this week is sort of like a curated, all questions considered episode of the show. We know that there are a bunch of uh, current events, results from the past weekend that we want to get through. We got a lot of good listener mail about that. And so we're going to do sort of a combination of talking our way through a lot of the results from the weekend and also here and there letting some listener mail guide the discourse. Also, if you, if you happen to be following along with the live video stream and you have a comment or a question that throws up, go ahead and throw it up in there. Maybe we'll incorporate it into the discussion. You're not going to look. We're, I'm looking at it right now, my man. This is the thing where right you say now. that we're going to incorporate the questions and comments from the, the comments from the live stream and then you just forget to look. Rouge Islam says, wow, great quality today, both audio and video. I can't tell if that's sarcastic, so I'm going to treat it as if it's sincere. A genuine compliment. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Ben, the big ticket headline from the weekend is the new women's UFC strawway champion, Jessica Andrade. She beats Rose Namajunas in emphatic uh, highlight reel fashion with a slam KO about three minutes into the second round in their main event fight. And it was a fight that, up to that point, Rose Namajunas had been winning it, though Jessica Andrade was also getting to do a lot of her stuff. And then the slam, the brutality, the sheer brutality, I guess, of the slam KO finish caused a a, a flurry of, of excitement and uh, various takes online. So we wanted to talk about this fight, obviously, first and foremost. And, the, and frankly, man... There's a lot to discuss yeah. surrounding the Jessica Andrade-Rose Namajunas battle. So I guess let's just start with the fight first, and then we can uh, talk about some of the ancillary stuff going on after the fight and get into a couple of listener mail questions here. But suffice to say that for the first round and a half of this thing, it looked like Rose Namajunas had spent the time away from the cage uh, sharpening all of her skills, yeah. coming back looking, frankly, better than ever, just tagging Jessica Andrade whenever she wanted to, working that jab, uh, hitting her at distance, shooting a takedown here and there. Like, frankly, this was a beautiful, nuanced, exciting mixed martial arts fight from beginning to end. Right. Especially from Rose Namajunas, you're right. She looked better than I've ever seen her look for seven minutes, you know, seven minutes and change. It was not just that she was the superior striker, but that she was doing such a impressive variety of things. She was quicker, for one thing, and so it enabled her to really get off first when she wanted to. And when she wanted to lead the dance there, she was able to do that. When she wanted to counter and deal with Jessica Andrade, just kind of trying to bull her way in, she was able to do that. 
And it really left Andrade with such a diminished set of options. She had to just charge straight in and put her hands on Rose Namunas. Had to get in there close and use strength to bull her way down. And that strategy could not have gone any better for her at the very end of the fight. Because before that, she's getting beat up, man. Like, she is not looking like she has too many paths to victory. And then she gets her, she picks her up with that, uh, again, like trying the same thing she tried in the first round, where you're picking her up and Rose Namajunas' counter is basically grab the Kimura grip and hold on to it for dear life and, and try to impede the slam that way. And the mistake she made was just in holding on to it a little too long. I love it when we get foreshadowing in MMA. You know, she, Jessica Andrade was able to lift Rose Namajunas a couple times in that first round and we saw that raw power that she possesses you know, both in her punching power and just like her sheer physicality. And then, you know, that ended up being the the turning point in the second round, the end of the fight when she she did it again. And this time, instead of uh, just kind of dumping Rose Namajunas on the canvas as she did in the first round, she dumped her right on her head on the right. canvas, knocked her out. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the end of this fight. I know that it was, I guess it wasn't controversial, but it, uh, you know, it caused some people to to say some things about it online and I know we have a question from Josh Montgomery that we're going to get to here in a minute uh but for most of this fight it looked a lot like what I thought the fight was going to look like uh I expected Rose Namajunas to win I expected her to win sort of doing what she had been doing up to the point that she lost uh but I didn't expect her to be as effective as she was I mean she just looked dominant up to the point that Andrade scooped her up for that slam in the second round but at the same time like that is one of the many reasons that we watch this sport Right, because yeah, we have this somewhat classical matchup between a technical fighter and a, just like a powerhouse, and even during the times that the technical fighter is winning the day with her physical tools and and her skills, uh, that tension always exists of knowing that this thing could end at any moment just because of Jessica Andrade's punching power. I don't think anyone thought it was going to end with a vicious uh, KO slam like this, but like frankly. This is one of the things that makes MMA great and makes MMA exciting and enticing to the viewer. That's that even though the first seven minutes of this thing looked like a, it was going to be a walk for Rose Namajunas, boom, it ends in, in a split second. Andrade pitches her up, dumps her on her head, knockout victory, new champion. You're saying anything could happen? That's what you're saying? I feel like others have said that before. It has a, fr- a familiar ring to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I agree with you, especially because in a lot of team sports that we're used to, you know, you turn on a a football game and it's 42 to nothing in the fourth quarter. And you're like, well, this one is over. The, it's just, the time is working against you. You can't just go out there and throw one good pass and end it. And MMA has that capability. Fight sports have that. doesn't matter how far ahead you are on the scorecards. As long as there's a second left on the clock, you can always win it. And you're right that that is, that does create a level of like kind of constant tension. Also, though, we've talked before about the phenomenon of fighters who would have won until they lost. Yep. Was Jessica Andrade, would she have lost until she won? I mean, it did you see enough of the fight to that say way. that? It certainly it was, shaped up that way. I mean, it, she could always, uh, she always has the ability to land one of those strikes, you know what I mean? But it didn't look like Rose Namajunas was going to get caught. I mean, there were some instances here where even before the slam, Andrade was able to kind of pull Nama Yunus into the fight that she wanted to have. There were some 
there were some uh, exchanges in the pocket here. Rose Namajunas clearly didn't look afraid to stand and strike with Jessica Andrade. Uh, so there was always a possibility that Andrade was going to win by knockout. But like the first round was was a dominant performance by Rose. Most of the start of the second round was a dominant performance by Rose. Although uh, it seemed like to begin that second Jessica Andrade had kind of lit a fire under herself. I think she came out more aggressively in that second round, was more intent on getting to do her stuff than just standing there and letting Rose tag her uh, from a distance where she couldn't really fire back. So, like, I honestly thought that it was a good performance by both people, just in that, you know, Nama Yunus was out there working like a really good game plan. She looked sharp as hell. She looked diverse. She looked super deadly. And Nama Yunus was kind of, like, adjusting to that over time, I thought, uh, and of course, eventually won by slam. But like, yeah, for the first seven minutes of this thing, it sure looked like it was going to be a Rose Namajunas successful title defense. Yeah, well, and it looked like it was going to be the best Rose Namajunas we've seen. Yeah, like just her her level of comfort and patience, but also she was able to you know keep the jab in your face, throw the lead right hand, give you stuff where it felt like Jessica Andrade never got a chance to set up her offense. But then also when she started to feel a little more comfortable, like she knew where Jessica Andrade was going to be, she'd throw that that left hook and that right hand behind it, and it was just stinging, yeah. just right down the middle. And yeah, that's why it really surprised me to see Jessica Andrade be able to get in there and basically Rose Namajunas running out of space. Like you're trying to keep this distance between you. She just commits to charging forward. And there were some times where Namajunas was able to, to play that off to one angle, but in, at the time of the slam basically just got run into the cage and then got picked up. And she was too focused on trying to like, I'll shut it down by isolating this arm. And instead of, you know, fighting for underhooks or trying to stop the takedown like another way and just held on to it too long and came down really awkwardly. Now let's talk about the, the, the slam itself. Okay. Because everybody, you know, it seems like, the immediate question started to be, did she spike her on her head in a way that's illegal? And I thought Big John McCarthy, in his response to that on Twitter, did a good job of kind of explaining it. Like, there is a difference between picking somebody up and deliberately spiking them on their head in a situation where that is clearly your goal, and picking them up over your head, flinging them down, and as their body rotates, they land on their head. So I don't think that the rule is meant to be interpreted that way. The rule is not like... If you are going to throw somebody, you have an obligation to make sure they don't land on their head. That's right. not how how it works. You can you can throw him down there. Like who was it? One of the Dagestani fighters who said, "My job is to throw him how he lands. It's his business." Yeah, that I think applies here. Yeah, like I didn't think it looked like an illegal slam. Uh, I was surprised that that seemed to take such hold in the in the like popular discourse about the fight after it was over. Uh, you know, it certainly wasn't like Bob Stapp or Bob Sapp. I almost said Scott Stapp, the lead singer of Creed. But uh, Bob Sapp, Spike How do and you Nogira. You know what the name of the lead singer Creed is, man. Of course I do. Come on, is it your fan letters? Inner workings of the brain over here. Okay, that's terrifying. Uh, it wasn't like an obvious Spike situation. You know, it was just and Rose was clearly working that Kimura as a a defense against getting right. picked up. Like that was clearly her strategy. I, you know, I, I watched it a couple times. I just didn't think it seemed illegal. Uh, and if that was illegal, then we've seen a lot of different illegal stuff. Right. Well, like the slam that Daniel Cormier loves so much where he starts out on a single leg and then moves to a high crotch and he'll pick you up and elevate you up over his head. And he even mentioned it afterwards where he was like, usually when I do that to people, they rotate all the way through and land on their backs because they're not holding on to that arm 
the entire way through. Like he did it to Josh Barnett, he did it to Dan Henderson, but that's a slam where somebody could easily land on their head the exact same way if you know if it just worked out that way. Or every time we've seen somebody do like a, a belly to back suplex, essentially, like those are all situations where you can. We saw. Robbie Lawler spiked Ben Askren on his head, right? Yeah. And we loved it. Yeah. Just fucking loved it. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. It, it does seem like we suddenly decided to care about it here. Well, that gets us into this question here from Josh Montgomery that I want to read. He writes, Rose Namajunas is one of my favorite fighters in the game, and I am a fan of women's MMA all around. After seeing the replay of that slam, it made me feel way worse for Rose than it would have happened to a male fighter who I root for. I find myself way more empathetic towards female fighters, and when one is being demolished, even I do not. Even if I do not know the fighter, I feel like I want to parachute in like Morris Sislak and save them. Oh wow, that's a that's a Simpsons reference. Did you catch that? Yeah, it's I Mo. It. Yeah, uh, I would think others feel the same as me, and I just wonder if that is a, is sexist slash demeaning way to watch women's MMA, or if it just makes me human. Uh, so there's been a lot of this uh, in the aftermath of this fight. A lot of uh, Thoughts and prayers for the well-being of, of Rose Namajunas, even though she herself seems to be taking it, you know, the physical part of it anyway, pretty well. She's on Twitter here talking about how that's the last time she ever lets Dana White pick her walkout music, etc., etc. Uh, we can get into the Rose Namajunas mindset in a minute, because I think it's one of the interesting things about the the outcome of this fight. But I feel like anytime you see a person get slammed on their head like that and knocked out, there's always kind of a cringe factor. And I think that when it's a person who is as slight as Rose Namajunas, like it's a 115-pound person, that makes the cringe factor a little bit worse. But at the same time, I also think that, like, man, if you are going to be a fan of this sport, you have to accept the fact that uh, terrible things happening is a possibility. And I do feel like it is a little bit demeaning, while understandable, that, like, we seem to extend this care for women's fighters when we don't necessarily do it to, to men's fighters. Men, yeah. men's fighters, man's fighters, as Man. my, uh, one of my kids would say, but like, it's ugly to see somebody get slammed on their head like that. It is. I think people like Rose Nama Yunus. I think she's a likable character in the sport. And so like to see her get knocked out, obviously like emotionally affected people. Uh, it happens all the time. Like people, and we'll talk about this, I think later in the show, but people constantly bend over backwards to explain away Anderson Silva's losses because they like him. Yeah. So it's like kind of natural that people would feel sort of, you know, protective over someone that they that they find to be a magnetic personality like Rose Namajunas. I just don't want the end of the fight and the people's feelings about it to take away from the fact that this was a fucking great fight. Do you, first of all, do you find yourself doing this just in general, like beyond Rose Namajunas? Because I think that she is a little bit of a different case because she allows herself to be publicly vulnerable and will tell you what's on her mind and how she's feeling. And I think that that creates a greater sense of empathy and maybe even concern because she will tell you how nervous she is and how the the mental side of it is difficult. And so you are conscious of that when you see her walking out, even you're like, Oh man, I hope she's okay. Yeah. Uh, But do you find that in general, you are more concerned for female fighters than you would be for male fighters in the same situation? Not anymore. Like, uh, I feel like I, there's a, like I said, there's a kind of like an oh shit factor when you see someone get knocked out with a slam. And I feel like I felt kind of the same way when I saw Ben Askren get slammed, like you talked about. The weird thing about this particular slam 
is that I didn't even think it was as bad as some other slams that we've seen. And I don't think no. it was as bad as slams that we have seen perpetrated against women's fighters. Like, I don't think this Rose Namajunas slam is worse than the Roxanne Mataferi slam by Sarah Kaufman yeah. in Strike Force back in 2010. Because that was the one that I saw that when I saw it, my initial immediate reaction was, oh shit, someone's going to get killed doing this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like, at that point, I had to like make myself... Uh, come to terms with that. Like, yeah, someone could get killed doing this uh, and it could be anyone in this sport. So like, I didn't necessarily think that this slam was all that graphic, to be honest. I was surprised a little bit by the, the uh, severity of the reaction. Yeah. I remember seeing a slam in the WEC. I think it was in the last WEC. Maybe it was Eddie Wineland, um, the last WEC event. And it was the same kind of situation as the Sarah Kaufman, Roxanne Monteferi one where somebody gets like picked up and slammed so hard in the back of their head is what bounces off. Rather yeah. than Rosenbaum Yunus where she landed kind of on her neck and her head. I think there you worry about like neck, spinal damage. Like that is, especially for somebody with, with a pile of trash neck, you, you feel like vicariously in pain and in great shock when you see something like that. The people getting slammed down so that the back of their head snaps off like a like a whiplash kind of effect off the back of the mat. That does seem like that's a situation where somebody could get very, very badly messed up. And whoever was in the WEC, I remember they were down for a long, long time after that that knockout. I I guess I feel the same way. Like I I can vaguely remember feeling differently about sometimes when you see women's fight and see a lot of blood or like, you know, somebody's got their nose smashed and they keep getting punched in it and you would feel, oh, I, I definitely am having a different reaction to this than I do to men's fights. But then we've seen so many of them now that we've gotten used to it. I think that a lot of the feelings that people had are more personally related to Rose Namajunas herself. I agree. And I think that we can talk about Rose Namajunas now uh, in terms of like her mindset and what she's going to do next. Just because like she's always been super honest about her emotional state in the sport and how the sport is really hard and like... Basically, her goal was to make enough money to buy a beautiful farm that she could go live on in peace and like grow vegetables and play the piano and, and you know, be Rose Namajunas, which I think is a perfectly acceptable and, and fine goal. And a, probably more people should have that goal when they get into mixed martial arts. So it's not necessarily all that surprising that in the wake of this slam, there's been some notion that this could be it for her, that she talked maybe about. She didn't really know what was next. She would probably consider retirement. And frankly, like people around Rose Namajunas have been saying for a while that they weren't sure how she was, how long right. she was going to stick around in this sport and that it didn't necessarily seem like the kind of thing that she was going to devote her whole life to. And to me, that makes her an even more fascinating character. You know, we've heard like, people like the Diaz brothers talk a lot before about how hard MMA is and how like they feel oh, kind of almost offended if someone asked them, are you excited for this fight? And Diaz, Nick Diaz would be like, "Are you? would you be excited to fight Anderson Silva? No, it's going to hurt. Like, it's going to be terrible, but they're going to pay me a lot of money, so I'm going to do it. I don't think it's, like, out of character for Rose Namajunas. I don't even think it's necessarily wrong for Rose Namajunas to feel like she doesn't enjoy the physical toll of mixed martial arts. And yet, she does it at, like, almost the highest level in that weight class out of anyone. Like, as you said, like, she looked... She at 115 pounds, she looked as good as we've ever seen anyone look for the first seven minutes of this fight, and then she just happened to essentially get caught with the with the equivalent of a one punch knockout. Yeah, well, and the comment she made right afterwards, which was that it was a great 
pressure lifted off of her, basically, to not be the champion anymore. Right. Well, a and, lot of uh, people remember Demetrius Johnson essentially said the same thing. Yeah, and you can see where that comes from. You know, when you're the champion, the only place to go is down, and the the feeling of everybody else is gunning for you and you have to go out there and be perfect every time just to stay where you are. That is a lot of pressure and I can see how a part of you would be glad to be rid of it. It also seems to me kind of weird and I was working on a a column earlier today about this, how especially in this specific fight card and we'll talk some about this later on, but like you see some of the older guys fight, you know, BJ Penn, Anderson Silva and the reaction to them afterwards is, oh God, please stop. Please, we, we've had enough. Will you please retire? And then Rose Namajunas, who's 26 and looking really good, suffers this loss and says, I don't know, I'm not really having that much fun with this right now. Maybe this will be it. And there's a part of us that goes, oh, no, don't stop. Right. Like, no, we want you to keep going. We, we wanted to be able to keep watching you. We're excited about it. And it's a, it's a weird thing where we're, like, we want to kind of retroactively pick the point where you're like, okay, that was when we had seen enough. And not really take into, into account on in both ways for somebody like Rose, she might feel like, okay, I've had enough. I want to go do something else. A completely reasonable point of view there. And then somebody like Anderson Silva would be like, okay, that hurt, but I've been hurt before. I haven't had enough. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And like, I just think it's amazing that we've talked before in this sport about how MMA is so hard that you kind of like have to be 100% physically dedicated to it to do it physically and mentally and emotionally dedicated to it to do it at the highest level. And it's amazing to me that, you know, Rose Namajunas can do it at the highest level and still sort of be like, I'm only doing this for a short time. Like, maybe I don't even like this. So that's a very, you know, interesting and I think human and I think appealing part of her character. And it will be interesting to see what she does next. Selfishly, I think it's easy to hope that she sticks around and maybe for her own well-being, I feel like it's easy to hope that she walks away. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. What kind of champ do you think Jessica Andrade can be at 115 pounds? Because she becomes the fourth UFC women's strawweight champion. Carla Esparza, Joanna Yajacek, Rose Namajunas, Jessica Andrade. She's definitely a, the style of fighter that we have not yet seen hold the belt at that weight class. True. I think that... the. You know, the fact that she can knock someone out with a slam or knock someone out with a one punch with one punch might be appealing to UFC viewers. It might make her a little bit more marketable as a champion uh, for the UFC. Clearly, like people are going to love her in Brazil. I feel like the UFC is somewhat hungry for Brazilian stars at the moment. A lot of the current Brazilian stars are on the downside of their career. On the other hand, we've seen the UFC kind of balk at uh, someone like Amanda Nunes, who could be a big Brazilian star for them. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with Jessica Andrade. And the one thing that I would say that makes me feel like maybe this is her Achilles heel as the champion is that we now have this unique to MMA, like snake eating its own tail style parody at strawweight where uh, Jessica Andrade beat Rose Namajunas, who beat Joanna Yajacek, who beat... Jessica Andrade. Right. And if you're Yuana Yanjechik, you're probably excited about this development. Best thing that could happen to you, man. Yeah. That you weren't going to get another fight with Rose Namajunas, but you could conceivably get another fight with uh, Jessica Andrade. And I'm sure there's a lot of contenders in the strawweight division who saw this fight and this outcome and thought, okay, business could be about to pick up here. Because Jessica Andrade looked vulnerable in the first round and the, the beginning of the second round. A lot of people, I'm sure, who feel like they have a good distance striking style and good cardio are feeling like, all right, this is a more beatable champion for me than Rose Namajunas was. Because 
if you can go out there and you can keep her where you want her and you can avoid just that bull rush and, you know, avoid getting slammed on your head when she gets in there, then you have a pretty good chance against her because standing at, you know, boxing distance, she can, she has power, but you can kind of see it coming. It's not that terrifying a, a prospect, I think, for a whole lot of people. So for me, especially the way this fight unfolded, I, I'll be interested to see the first title defense because it's hard for me to see you come out of that one and be like, okay, hey, you're clearly the best straw weight in the world right now because you were getting pieced up. Yeah. Pieced up. Wasn't winning a second of that fight, really, until she got that slam. And so you really need that first title defense to definitively say, I'm here, I'm really the best, I'm the champ. And until you get that, I think that there's going to be a lot of people feeling like, mm, we saw a blueprint that other people might be able to follow. Despite the fact that this ended so emphatically, is this a rematch situation just because Rose Namajunas was winning this fight up to the point where she lost? I guess we need to find out what Rose wants to do first and foremost, but uh, we seem to be giving out championship rematches like candy over there in the UFC. So I'm just wondering what they will choose to do here. Yeah, I mean, I would watch a rematch. Frankly, I would pick Rose Namajunas in a rematch, but yes. the, you're right. There are some variables there that make it seem like it's not necessarily a given. All right, next question this week from Isaac Spooner, who writes, so that Chandler versus Pitbull, the smaller fight, went a bit screwy, huh? Ben, over in Bellator 221, the main event, the lightweight title fight, super fight between uh, featherweight champion Patricio Pitbull Friere and Michael Chandler, the lightweight champion. The Pitbull brother wins this thing via TKO about midway through the first round. A surprise, I guess. Like a minute into the first round. That's right, yeah. It was, it was a very short fight. Uh, it's yet another instance where the smaller man wins the super fight, where he moves up to fight the champion at the, at the next weight class. But there's been some questions about the stoppage. Yeah. Clearly, Michael Chandler is going to be mad about the stoppage. I don't know, man. I thought it clearly seemed like he was out and accepting strikes, uh, you know, to the back of his head, essentially, while he's prone on the canvas. And even though he woke up in a flash there, I would still say I didn't necessarily think this was a terrible stoppage. Yeah, that was a tough split-second call for the ref to make. Because you're right. First, you know, there's the right hand behind the ear, and Chandler goes down pretty hard. And then he's basically turtled up, and, you know, Pitbull the Younger is there landing these short left hooks. And there does seem to be a moment, like, a, and I mean a moment, a, the briefest possible moment where his face just kind of sinks down to the canvas. He's not moving. He's not responding. And it looks like he's out. But then snaps right back to and is getting up as the referee is stopping it. Also, I think we saw something here. How do you stop your opponent from passing the what the fuck test as he's getting up? Trying to say, what the fuck? Go ahead and hit him again in the back of the head. And then he goes down again, like as the ref is stepping in there. Then it's like, oh, it muddles the water there. Like you can't tell if he was able to pass the what-the-fuck test because he hit him one more time even after the ref had stepped in. I mean, I it's one of those stoppages where I understand both sides. Yeah, Pitbull saying, hey, he kissed the canvas. He was out. I won. It, there's no controversy. I understand why he would feel that way. I also understand how Michael Chandler being able to pop up like that would be like, hey, man, I... I was hurt there, but I was still in it. You got to give me a chance. Yeah, and I think if you're Bellator, you could do a lot worse, right? Like Patricio Friere is your is your champ, champ, which is great. Uh, it's going to be easy to tell those brothers apart now because one of them will have two belts. So there you go. What if he lets his brother carry one of the belts? What do you get? Oh, well, what gets heavy? I mean, come on, you can't do that. <laughs> Just screwed all over again. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's not the worst thing for Bellator to have a little controversy here because I think you know, just as is often the case with Bellator, I think running it back. Uh, might make sense. Might give you another marketable grudge match uh, fight for the lightweight title that you could uh, promote. On the other hand, Patricio Pitbull 
was out here calling out Canelo Alvarez. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't that feel a little bit like paint by numbers? You just won two belts, so now you got to call out a boxer? Like, we've, we've seen this one before. Yeah, that's the thing. I saw people online being like, oh, that's ridiculous for him to say that. And I was like, well, shit, man, in MMA at this point, you might as well say it. Especially if you're Patricio Pitbull. Like, what do you have to lose? You better go ahead and watch the DVD of The Secret first, though. Yeah, but you might as well just float it out there, man. Like, all they can say is no. Put it out there in the universe? Worst thing they can say is no, Ben. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. I mean, you saw AJ McKee take an aim at uh, Pitbull before this fight. And he goes out there and wins his fight. He's undefeated. That's a fight that you could potentially make. I mean, he has some options now. It does, though, seem interesting, and I wrote about this, about how now he's a champ champ. He beat Michael Chandler. That's a solid win for him. And he's got four straight wins, was a featherweight champion. Last win was that injury, like leg kick injury TKO loss to Benson Henderson. And yet you look around at any MMA site's rankings, like featherweight rankings, and the pit bull is way down there. Yeah. Like he's not even top five and anywhere I looked, like, I think we had him at number 10. I think ESPN has him at like eight. And you wonder like, what would he have to do to substantially increase the way we think of Patricio Pitbull? Like, is that even possible with who he has to work with in Bellator? Well, I was just going to say, I think a lot of those rankings have a significant UFC bias, right? And it's natural. The UFC is the dominant brand. It's the, it's the top, uh, flagship MMA brand in the world. So like basically if you're the UFC champion or you're a top contender in the UFC, you're going to be right up there around the top of, of the rankings, even at places where they, you know, they rank fighters from other organizations in their, in their rankings, which obviously isn't the case for some of them. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, there's probably a little bell, bit of Bellator bias out there, but like the thing that struck me about this fight for as short as it lasted was that the thought actually crossed my mind while these two guys were fighting like these two guys could f- fight in any organization. Like Michael Chandler versus Patricio Pitbull would be a hell of a fight in any MMA organization in the world, and those guys probably deserve to be ranked higher. Frankly, yeah. Uh, yeah. Michael Chandler, I guess Ben at this point is thirty three years old. He still has an uh, incredible record. Uh, I believe this loss snapped like a four fight win streak for him. We've seen him lose to guys like Brent Primus via injury. We've seen him lose to Will Brooks. We've seen him lose to uh, Eddie Alvarez. Uh, this, like, what do, what do you make of him? What do you make of his future here? Like, the only thing that would, would give me pause is that, you know, he's been in the game for a long time and has had a fair number of fights. I think he has about, he 20, he's almost at 25 fights here. Yeah, and they have, even the ones that he's won, they haven't necessarily always been easy fights. Like, yeah. he's, he's taken some damage him. And I think one of the things that you can count on in a Michael Chandler fight is that he can win just about any fight he can also give himself a chance to lose just about any fight like he'll at times get himself in situations that are riskier than he needs to yeah and that that might shorten your career sometimes and that damage is going to pile up a little bit but if you ran it back with pitbull i think he has a pretty decent chance to win that yeah uh, maybe the way forward is AJ McKee against Patricio Pitbull. Cause that would be a featherweight fight, right? That would be the defense of the 145 pound title. Right. And then, you know, win, lose or draw against that thing. You could always against AJ McKee. You could always have Pitbull go back up and fight Michael Chandler again, I guess. So like that gives you a nice little, uh, especially if you could get Michael Chandler a win in the interim, that gives you a nice little way forward for Bellator. Or if you get him to voluntarily vacate one of those belts, you get yourself another one of those grand prix that Bellator loves so much. Huh? 
You know, uh-huh. you know what's interesting? I don't necessarily know if we have time to get into it all on this show today, but like on Friday's Power Hour, we were talking about whether or not Bellator has significantly narrowed the gap in quality between itself and the UFC and whether if it did or if it passed the UFC in terms of quality, if anyone would even notice now that everyone is sequestered behind their various paywalls and the UFC seems safely ensconced as the top league organization in the world. Uh, I noticed that like the upcoming Bellator schedule is kind of dope that like we're going to roll out Machida versus Sonnen on June 14th. Rory McDonald, at least in theory is going to turn around and come right back fight Neiman Gracie. Uh, you know, you that get one your, has the uh, the Darian Caldwell uh, against the the Gooch yeah. rematch cross promotion, which I think is a cool thing that Bellator is doing right now. Heather like Hardy's on that one. Dylan Dennis also on that one. I know you're a big Dylan Dennis guy. Yeah, I got my Dylan Dennis T-shirt hanging in the closet right now. Uh, I feel like it kind of bolsters the conversation that we had. That like Bellator seems like it's going to be able to do some good stuff over the summer, and like the UFC just announced its own schedule for the second half of, of 2019. And it was exhausting just to look at the damn thing. <laughs> yeah. But again, I think maybe we'll get a clearer fix on will people notice if Bellator starts putting out a more competitive product. Yeah. Okay. Here's a question from Curtis Bouchard. He writes Douglas Lima out here trying to become one of my guys. Question mark. Ben Douglas Lima KO to Michael Venom page. Uh, this was part of the welterweight tournament, correct? That's right. So he moves on. Uh, you know, Michael Page is a guy who is obviously super talented, and he can be electric and sometimes maddening in the cage, and it seemed like a lot of people were waiting to cheer when he got knocked out. Yeah, and he knew that. And I think he was willing to work with that. His comments after the fight suggest that you know he knew that this day was going to come, but that he had a pretty good attitude about dealing with it. Yeah. And in fairness, I also like what he said. He handled this well because... Afterwards, he was like, well, if I had to lose and get knocked out by somebody, I guess I'm glad it was him. Because Douglas Lima is a good dude. And he's just a good fighter. And that was a um, like really impressive sequence that he does there. It he, sure was. He lands that low leg kick just as, you know, taking advantage of Michael Page's like unconventional footwork, basically. Catching him, knocking his legs out from under him. And then you got a really limited window there where you've got to land that punch at the right time and at right at the right location, just as he's trying to get up and he nails it yeah. in the perfect spot and knocks him out. Yeah. And like, to me, even more impressive. Remember I was talking about foreshadowing earlier, like Douglas Lima appeared to be, to have been trying to do that earlier in the fight. Like he was utilizing that front leg low kick pretty much the whole time, perhaps knowing that the way Michael page jumps around and puts a lot of weight on his front foot, that like he could either do damage to that leg or knock him down with one of those kicks. So I thought that it was super impressive to watch him actually do that. And frankly, uh, impressive that like he had got stung with a punch himself previous to that. Like we got to see Michael Page look dangerous, and then Douglas Lima came straight back uh, and finished the fight with like a uh, probably a knockout of the year contender. Yeah, like both Douglas Lima and Jessica Andrade authored potential knockout of the year contenders on this night, which is kind of interesting. The one of the main criticisms of MVP Ben had been that it seemed like Bellator was kind of taking it easy with the matchmaking that they wanted to bring him along slowly. So I guess I will say as another positive function of these tournaments that Bellator is running over there, the welterweight bracket fucked around and gave MVP a very, very tough matchup because yeah. he beat Paul Daly and then he has to fight Douglas Lima. Who's one of the best welterweights in Bellator. Yeah. And now, you know, Douglas Lima moves on to the finals there, right? So He's going to f- take on the winner of Neiman Gracie and Roy McDonald, assuming that that fight actually happens as scheduled. Like, 
this could end up being the example of like how a tournament structure can really instantly put somebody on the map or revive somebody who's already been on the map. Because if he makes, if he actually gets, let's say, Roy McDonald beats Neiman Gracie, and then he gets this fight with, with Roy McDonald and actually managed to win it, then Douglas Lima is a capital G guy. Yeah. Even if, you know, let's say Neiman Gracie beats Roy McDonald, who is still, you know, being talked to by God and has not quite recovered from the John Fitch fight. If he goes on and beats Neiman Gracie, still, it's a tournament final and it has that kind of panache about it. You still end up with a big, huge bump because of that. I agree. All right, here's a question from John Van Note. More of a statement than a question, but it's still going to work to get us on to our next topic. UFC about to sign TJ Jones for the next Greg Hardy co-main event. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. So, uh, Ben, we saw Beef Plant, uh, TJ Jones, kind of win our hearts the week leading up to Bellator 221. Maybe because he appeared to be such an obvious attempt to get Jake Hager another win inside the Bellator cage. Yeah, obvious. Because when it's so clear what you're doing, how are we supposed to cheer for the obvious and inevitable thing to happen? Yeah. That is not, this is not how anybody works in this sport, especially the, we talked a little bit on the power hour about the eye test that goes on here because the UFC is clearly setting up Greg Hardy with set up fights, except those guys, you at least look at them and you go, okay, that guy is a real professional fighter. This is what he does. Clearly he did not get chosen because they wanted to be in the Dmitry Smolyakov business, but he at least standing there at the media day or at the, the weigh-ins, he looks like, okay, maybe he could win this fight. or It's a possibility, at yeah. least. And this, it did not look like that at all. It looked like Bellator went out there and was just like, all right, find us a regional fat kid. Like, whoever. Like, I don't know if it was the difficulty in finding somebody who would take the fight. Heavyweight's already a shallow pool. We've already talked about that, especially if you're in Bellator. It, there's not a whole lot of quality people out there available. So you go and you get some guy who's not even really an active fighter at the time that you get him. And it basically feels like kind of like sanctioned bullying. I mean, we want this guy to beat somebody up. We found this guy who we're, we've studied it and we're sure he poses no real threat. So let's go out there and do it. But then the thing is, what do you get out of that? Yeah. It's not like you come out of there going like, all right, yeah, Jake Hager proved something to me here. Like, and now I'm excited about him. Like, if you weren't already on board, it's not like you see him beat this guy and you're like, okay, yeah, he's legit. Yeah. And I was reminded during our short love affair with Beef Plant this past week, like, how these stories always go. Where it's like, man, we can, we can start out kind of like making fun of TJ Jones for his appearance. And then like over the next couple of days be like, Hey, you know what? Like, I actually think it would be dope if TJ Jones, Jones won this fight. It would have like, been the greatest moment in MMA history. Yeah, yeah. Just be like, kind of like go from being like, this is ridiculous. Look at this obvious tomato can to then being like, I hope this guy wins. I'm going to support TJ Jones in his fight against Jake Hager to then seeing him in the cage and be like, yeah, nope. Like that, that's how they knew it was going to go right there. Uh, especially when Hager is able to take him down within like the first 20 seconds of the fight and then, you know, works around to that arm triangle choke that ultimately finished the fight and TJ Jones has got his tap in hand. He went with the, uh, the Conor McGregor tap in hand at the ready, just basically waiting for Hager to cinch it up. Well, and then he doesn't let go right away after he taps. He taps, the referee gets in there, doesn't let it go. Okay, let's talk about the, the Jake Hager heel turn at Bellator 221, holds the choke 
a couple seconds longer than he probably had to. Uh, and I guess in the post-fight, he just said that he wanted to make sure it was one of those situations where the ref pulled him off. Although, I don't know like what danger Jake Hager was in. Like, if TJ Jones suckered Jake Hager with a fake tap and let him go, and then the fight had to go on, probably Jake Hager would win this fight twice in that <laughs> night. So, I, yeah. you know, I guess he just wanted to be very sure. Uh, here's a question from the Jesse White Deer about Jake Hager. Jake Hager's boner or Derek Lewis's hot balls who had the best post-fight speech? Where does Mr. Swagger's rock-hard emotion rank in the decorated history of post-fight speeches? Thank you for your time. Jake Hager jumps on the mic, declares himself to be fully erect in his... With uh, emotion. He rock-hard with emotion. Also, he said he had a phoner, which he explained later was a fight boner. So that's a thing. Yeah. Like, he and didn't see, just make that up on the spot. Like That I must thought, be a thing that is in the lexicon of his world. Yeah, maybe in, in we go to different gyms. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought at first when he said phoner, uh, after he said rock hard with emotion, I have a phoner. I was like, is that like a boner from feelings? Is that what a phoner is? Yeah. And then when I heard that it's a fight boner, I was like, oh, I think I think my version was better, but okay. Now, in that post-fight speech, I guess, is where you see the value of hiring a former professional wrestler. Yeah. Because I... For one thing, I found it interesting how the crowd was pretty solidly against him by the time this fight was over. And I couldn't tell how much of that is just like, hey, it looks like this looks like some bullshit, you beating up on TJ Jones. Yes. Like, why don't you pick on somebody who is in your caliber? Yes. Like, you know, this just seems like already no one can cheer for you really in this situation because of what it is. And then you hold the choke too long. And then everybody's like, okay, fuck this guy. But then he knows what to do with that energy. He, he can does, take yeah. it and he can turn it into something instead of just like the way other people be like, oh, don't boo me, oh, you know, or like get angry at them or booing. Like he really worked it and he made something out of it. Yeah. Jake Hager even has the haircut of an asshole. <laughs> During the pre-fight introductions for this fight, I was watching it and obviously you get the very different physical dichotomy between TJ Jones and Jake Hager. Uh, one of whom is bronzed and chiseled out of granite and six foot three or six foot five like or six whatever, five. whatever he is. And the other one looks like Chad Dundas with his shirt off. Uh, Hager's got this like comb over haircut during the pre-fight introductions where I was like, this guy just looks like an asshole. He's like, a Trump guy too, right? Yeah. He said he wants to be four and old by the time the Donald Trump gets reelected. So I don't know, man. I guess it's not surprising to find out that former Oklahoma wrestler Jake Hager is probably a, a guy like that. But at the same time, I don't know. Like, do you think that the, there's this quality future for him in Bellator if he is a heelish figure? Do you think people are going to be like, yeah, man, I want to I want to tune in to see if somebody beats up Jake yeah, Hager? Yeah, absolutely. I think that if Bellator is smart about that, yeah, you can get a lot of mileage out of it. Because especially if already if people don't like you and they have some basis for it. And you know how to really play that up and feed into that hatred. And then there's also the sense that the promotion is trying to feed you a steady diet of tomato cans. There's going to be then a, a strong public appetite. Give him a real opponent so we can see if he gets his ass kicked. Yeah. And if I'm Ryan Bader sitting there with that heavyweight title right now, oh man, I'm, I'm just savoring this opportunity that I might get to be the good guy. People might get to really cheer for Ryan Bader if I go out there and get to beat this guy up. Because for one thing, he's not the terrifying powerhouse 
you know, 280 pound heavyweight that you'd be worried about if you're the undersized heavyweight champion yeah. like Ryan Bader. You've got some wrestling credentials of your own, plus you're a much more experienced MMA fighter. And you don't, as we've seen before in past fights, you don't even have to have any personality if the other guy is enough of a heel. Yeah. Like all you have to be is not him and be like a good candidate for beating this guy's ass and you will be kind of the savior. Yeah. I was surprised that Hager weighs 239. Maybe I had not been paying attention to his earlier weigh-ins, but that is far lighter than I would have anticipated. Yeah, for like a muscular six foot five inch dude. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you wonder like what weight class he would be in if he was not, you know, doing curls for the girls, getting ready for to get his beach body together for the summer. I don't know. I'm just saying. You know who actually seemed like they would be good opponents for each other? Jake Hager and Greg Hardy. Yeah. Like that's that would be a good fight. That's the crossover fight there. Although, the, who's the good guy in that one? You know? Well, there is no good guy in You that hope one. for a double knockout? Yeah, mutual destruction. Also, I want to take a moment to pause to appreciate the CrossFit guy uh, disdainfully speaking of somebody's doing curls. We don't do any curls on the CrossFit gym. I know you don't. Next question this week comes to us from Roberto. After watching the Jared Cannonier-Anderson Silva fight, it looked to me that making Anderson Silva look like he only lost after suffering a knee injury was the chosen narrative. DC mentioned briefly after the post-fight interview that Jared Cannonier did a good job of targeting Silva's knee by landing multiple leg kicks throughout the fight, which obviously ended up helping the last blow, but that was the only brief credit that the killer gorilla received that night. John Anik kept pointing out how unfortunate the outcome of the fight was. To add insult to injury, the poor soul got violently booed during his interview with Anik, and even the huge amount of respect directed towards Anderson Silva during the fighter's embrace could not stop the hatred that he received from the crowd. The whole thing felt more like the story of how Anderson Silva kept being unlucky with his in-cage injuries than how the efficiency of his opponent's strategy led the the latter one to victory. Uh, and then he says, is it really that hard for MMA fans to exalt and acknowledge Silva's underperformance? Yes. And come to peace with the idea that he has definitely lost a step and that it has nothing to do with the injury. Please discourse. Uh, it's hard to watch Anderson Silva get hurt in the cage. Even I will say that, and I have not necessarily been all of that complimentary about Anderson Silva during the twilight stage of his career, but like nobody wants to see this dude suffer another leg injury. Yeah, in especially the cage. a leg. That's what I was gonna say. Like when he goes down gripping his leg, aren't you like, oh no, here we go again? Yeah, yeah, I am absolutely. But at the same time, like I think this is a valid question because Jared Cannonier came out there and kicked the shit out of Anderson Silva's leg a bunch of times, and it's not like Anderson Silva hurt himself out there. You know, I got to think Anderson Silva probably wouldn't have injured his knee if he just went out there by himself to do some shadow boxing. So I think you got to give Jared Cannonier the credit here for like well, having yeah. a good strategy and working it and then like won the fight via TKO. And he was looking good aside from that. Yeah, he outstroke struck Anderson Silva three to one in four minutes and 47 yeah, seconds. No, he looked like he was going to probably win that fight, I thought. And you're right. It's not like a situation where the guy just takes an awkward step and rolls his ankle and, he, and he's over. It's not even like kicking and the guy blocks it and you, you break your own leg. Like he is, he is kicking your leg and then because of that, your leg hurts. Yeah. So that, he did that. That yeah. is a legitimate way to win. And of course, though, I understand that part of it where everybody's going like, all right, we feel more emotionally invested in Anderson Silva at this point as MMA fans than we do in Jared Cannonier. So the focus is going to be on how badly is Anderson Silva hurt? Is this the kind of hurt where it tells you he needs to be done? The crowd is not going to be necessarily on your side if you're Jared Cannonier. Although, well, yeah, consider your location. Although that, too, was like, you're booing the guy. Like, what are you, are you mad at him? What did he do? What did he do wrong? You're mad at him. Like, what? 
I don't understand. Like you, I understand being disappointed with that outcome of the fight. You're not going to necessarily cheer for the guy, but to boo him for what felt like five minutes as he just stood there looking disappointed and like you're hurting his feelings. I don't get that because it's not like he did anything. If he did like something illegal and hurt Anderson Silva, all right, let him have it. But he didn't. Yeah, and that to me seemed like come on, Brazil. We know that Brazilian fans really get behind Brazilian fighters, but let's. Let's take it easy on the guy when you know we're in there doing legal moves that end up injuring people. I agree, though, that like it is the kind of thing where afterwards everybody's going to focus on. This was Anderson Silva being old, not Jared Cannonier being good. And I guess some of that is just inevitable to the situation there. But yeah, it does feel like he's getting a raw deal. Yeah, it's not Jared Cannonier's fault. He didn't, you know, he, they probably offered him this fight and he accepted it. He can't control how Anderson Silva looks out there and whether or not he gets his leg hurt. Next question this week comes for us to from Wolf Egbertson, the king of Wessex from 839 to 858. Okay, good to hear from him. Alexander Volkanovsky, black belt in Dundasso. This guy's mastered the art, dare I say. Eye pokes, dick kicks, and fence grabs. The guy ran down the list of Dundasso techniques and was rewarded with victory. I'm beginning to think this should just be standard practice moving forward. Fighters should just train in the Dundasso arts discourse, gentlemen. Well, obviously, yeah, they should. Well, and it yeah. is standard practice. That's and why it's a joke. As we've been saying, the key is... To mix up your fouls. Yeah, because you, you get one of each. That's yeah, kind of how it right. seems. You, if you kick a guy in the dick three times, the referee's got to do something. If you poke a guy in the eye three times, he's got to do something. But poke him in the eye once, kick him in the dick once, you grab the fence once, you're spreading it out. Yeah. It doesn't seem like you're doing anything too egregiously. And, well, to be fair, Jose Aldo has been known to get a little dandasa wee in his time as well. Indeed. You know, since we just ran down the Brazilian crowd, shout out to the Brazilian crowd for going crazy when Alexander Volkanovsky grabbed the fence in a way that another crowd would go crazy if someone got knocked out in death-defying fashion, right? <laughs> like, man, that's attention to detail. So props to the Brazilian crowd. It's for a crowd that. that's paying attention. I mean, yeah, there, there was some stuff in this fight, but at the same time, Alexander Volkanovsky probably would have beat Jose Aldo in this fight without those things. It's, like, it's not like he won the fight because of those things. Right, and I think... Alexander Volkanovsky, for me here, is the clear next fight for the featherweight title. Yeah. I think I don't know how you overlook the guy at this point. Yeah. And if you're Max Holloway, you lost that interim lightweight bout. You want to go back home, remind everybody that you're still the champ there. I think Alexander Volkanovsky, that fight makes perfect sense. And it'd just be a crackerjack of a fight. Yeah. I, you got to make that, right? Yeah. And, like, this is a great win for him. He clearly won it 30-27 all the way across the board. Uh, I thought it was a kind of a, a strange performance from Jose Aldo, although maybe not necessarily strange considering that we've been talking about him getting down toward the end of his career. Like, he definitely didn't look out of place in the cage against a guy who's probably the top contender at 145 pounds right now, which I think you can say to Jose Aldo's credit. But he definitely fought this fight in a way where he started out appearing so confident, kind of, and, like, relaxed where it seemed like Jose Aldo was going to be like, all right, I'm going to let Alexander Volkanovsky do his stuff and I'm going to get a read on him and then I'm going to do some Jose Aldo shit to him and then I'm going to win. And it just seemed like he never shifted into second gear. Did you see what he said afterwards where he said he felt like he'd never fought that badly in his life? Maybe he just an off night for him. Yeah, you know? it just seemed like he never really got the, the sports car out of the garage. Like he was just kind of, you know, he had some, some decent moments, but he just never really like 
you know, found his stride against Alexander Volkanovsky, which I think you got to credit Volkanovsky for that. He went out there and beat Jose Aldo, like, at Jose Aldo's game, basically. Yeah. Outstruck him in a way that I don't know that we've seen him outstruck, uh, you know, by anyone other than Max Holloway, maybe. All right, next question this week from the Cardiff Giant. Okay. Not sure. Do you think that's a, like an actual giant, or is it like an ironic nickname, or what? That's, I don't know. It could be a real wee person. Is that is that what you're saying? Like an ironic nickname? Yeah. Or maybe like a master of industry? That's, yeah. Uh, the Cardiff Giant was one of the most famous hoaxes in American history. Oh. It was a six-foot-tall purported petrified man uncovered on October 6, 1869 by workers digging a well behind the barn of William C. Stubb Newell in Cardiff, New York. So I assume it was like a fake why, well, now why, I want to know more about a, the card. I want to spend the rest of the podcast talking about the Cardiff Giant now. It's a six-foot man? Because it, it sounds like it was a purported, huge, petrified man. It was uh, both it and an unauthorized copy made by P.T. Barnum. Oh, are still wait. Being okay, supplied. I've heard of this. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's, he's well-endowed, the Cardiff Giant. I'm looking at a picture of him at the moment. <laughs> That's not what I thought you were going to say there, but all right. That, the, no, that is actually a, a famous kind of uh, legal precedent because once it, was con- once it was proven to be a fake, then you couldn't sue somebody for the knockoff. Like P.T. Barnum tried to buy the real thing from the guy, but then the guy wouldn't sell it, and so he just made his own. And it was like, well, hey, both of ours are fakes, so you can't sue me for having a fake, like a, a forgery of a forgery, basically. Well, now it's I, a famous case. Here's the thing. As soon as we're done recording, I'm going to read the entire Wikipedia page of the Cardiff Giant. There's a New York Times piece on the legal case in the P.T. Barnum element. I, I will send it to you. Don't worry. Don't worry. Anyway, what the, what the Cardiff Giant want to know here? No complaints from the giant ladies is, uh, <laughs> okay, is my know. guess. I don't know. Cardiff Giant writes, with his loss to Clay Guida this past weekend, BJ Penn's record is now perfectly even split between victories and not victories. He's 16, 14, and 2 overall. Jesus H. Christ, the guy hasn't won a fight in nine years. How badly does Penn's decision to continue fighting tarnish his legacy? Are there any other former UFC champions with a record that is this bad on paper? Will the MMA fans of 25 years from now even understand how good Penn actually was? Discourse. Uh, yeah, you know what I thought was striking in this fight was that BJ Penn looked, as we've seen him look in, in all of his recent fights, kind of like a shadow of his former self, yeah. although this was certainly not the worst that we've seen him look. No. Because we saw him show up against Frankie Edgar and look like someone had reanimated the corpse of BJ Penn and just like sent an uncoordinated Frankenstein's monster out there to fight, uh, to fight Frankie Edgar. He at least looked... Like a legitimate MMA fighter. Yeah, in and this. especially in the first round, I was like, okay, this is as good as he's looked in years, and still, it's not great. Striking to me that 37-year-old Clay Guida looked like they popped open the box, shook off the styrofoam pellets, turned him on, and were like, he works as, as good as new. It's like he looks exactly as he has looked in every other fight that we've ever seen yeah. in, in the UFC. Maybe being up against BJ Penn had something to do with him looking that way, but it appeared to me that Clay Guida can still go out there and do the damn Clay Guida thing. Yeah. And BJ Penn has just lost enough steam where the BJ Penn thing no longer works, and yet all the flaws are still there. He's still huffing and puffing midway through the second round. Yeah, you're right that Clay Guida is still going to be able to do all the Clay Guida stuff. And, you know, maybe there's a a slight drop-off in effectiveness of some of it, but you know there's not a lot of surprises there. You know what you're going to get. And 
the thing with BJ Penn continuing to fight is I understand it's like a, on some level, a kind of a selfish thing that we have where we we remember who the guy used to be. We remember how if they, if Clay Guida and BJ Penn fought 10 years ago, it would have been a mismatch. And now they fight and Clay Guida comes in as like a five to one favorite. And, you know, turns out for somewhat good reason. Still, I thought that was kind of a crazy line, but still goes out there and beats BJ Penn without too much difficulty. Yeah. And so for those of us who remember who BJ Penn used to be, the more of these performances you tack on at the end, when we all know it's the end, it does make it a little harder. And that's, I think, what we rebel at, kind of. I think there's two things we rebel at. One is that we're like, man, you're making it harder for us to remember you positively the way we want to. And that's a selfish thing on our part. Yeah. It'd be like, okay, hey, preserve my memories for me, my precious, precious memories. I don't care about what you want to do with your life. That is a selfish thing that fans do in fight sports. The other part of it, though, is that we know a 40-year-old BJ Penn who is not as good at defending himself is going to have consequences. That there are, You don't get to just screw around. It's not like you're Willie Mays out here dropping fly balls. You're getting punched and kicked in the head. Yeah. And so you increase the chances that this is going to have a very bad ending for you. And this is also a little bit of selfishness, but I, or maybe like us trying to assuage our guilt. Because there's a part of us that knows this increases the chances that we're going to see a badly damaged BJ Penn in his golden years. And that's going to feel bad. Like, we're going to all look at that and be like, man, now it's really tough to remember the good times. Yeah. And that is to say nothing of like the personal stuff that's going on with BJ Penn right, right. now, which makes it doubly hard to like root for him or be interested in his, in his fights, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think BJ Penn's legacy is going to be? Like, I think he's a hard guy to get a read on just because he was so great during his prime and at the same time, you know, spent some time away from the UFC when he was basically on uh, walkabout, going over there and fighting Leota Machida and various stuff at, at different weight classes. And, like, he always seemed like a guy who was very, very good and could have been unbelievably great if maybe he his work ethic had been a little bit better. I don't know if it's even just the work ethics. I mean, I know that that narrative really took hold, and maybe the, the UFC kind of behind-the-scenes series that they did leading up to that George St. Pierre fight did not do him any favors in that way because they really right. solidified that. They, yeah. they made it look like George is the hard-working former garbage man and BJ Penn is a child of privilege who has taken it easy in Hawaii. And then, you know, George went out there and beat him up in the fight and everybody was like, oh, see, you weren't ready for it. And not George St. Pierre is one of the greatest fighters of all time and you were going up a weight class. Like, I think one of the things, if anything stopped him or, like, made him look worse on paper, especially you mentioned his record now, it's that he always had kind of a outsized ambition about what he wanted to do. It wasn't he reluctantly settled into lightweight and dominated that weight class. Yeah, yeah he was true. trying to go up and fight Leo Machida, trying to go up and fight George St. Pierre. He was always trying to do stuff like that instead of just being like, here's my weight class, this is where I belong, and I will beat the asses of everybody else in it. Like that's that was not exactly how he wanted to do it. And so I think that that hurt him numbers wise and legacy wise a little bit. I still think if you're talking about like who's the greatest lightweight champion the UFC has ever had, and you're adjusting for like you know quality competition in the era and the you know consecutive wins and stuff, I still think there's a strong case to be made for BJ Penn. Yeah. Although you do have to just kind of drive a wedge in your mind to stop thinking about the current present day BJ Penn. Yeah, that's true. Uh, 
and he fought for many of you know for much of the the prime of his career he fought during an era in the UFC where there was nowhere to go but up right like right. he couldn't really go down i don't know no. if he would have wanted to try you know even as a younger person but uh he he didn't have a lot of other options besides welterweight or and this but i mean i understand like will the mma fans of 25 years from now i would say with the mma fans of now who became mma fans in the last 5 to 7 years will they understand because at the time when he was, you know, beating up guys like Sean Shirk and stuff like that, it was he was showing us in a lot of ways what the future of MMA was going to look like. Like a guy who could do all the different things that he could do. And there were times where you'd see people get in on takedown attempts on BJ Penn where you'd be like, okay, well, that's going to work because that always works. And against him, it wouldn't. Like yeah. he could just, you know, stand on one leg and fight off your takedown attempt. And he, he was a like a sign of things to come in a lot of ways in MMA. But if you came to this sport, if you've been watching this sport for five years, you probably feel like you've been an MMA fan for a long time and you've never seen a good BJ Penn. Yeah. And the record, I'm going to say the record is misleading. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. there's a lot. There's Rory well, McDonald. has a similar situation. Yeah. A loss of Rory McDonald is on this. Nick Diaz is on right. here. Uh, George St. Pierre is on here. Leoto Machida is on here. Like some of those losses are against guys that BJ Penn probably really didn't have any business fighting. Yeah. That's true. But I, I do think, I mean, it is interesting that the UFC, with all the stuff BJ Penn has going on, we talked about this a little bit on the Power Hour, this is the seventh fight in a row he's lost in the UFC. Yeah. Seven in a row. Nobody else is going to get a chance to lose seven in a row. Yeah. And add to that, he has all this other stuff going on that would also seem like a reason to maybe not give him fights right now. Like yeah. he's got active restraining orders against him. He's got, uh, he's under... Police investigation for a machete-involved dispute with his neighbor, allegedly. Mm -hmm. Stuff like that. Like, if you're the UFC, you could pick any one of those reasons and be like, not right now. Yeah. We're not going to do it right now. Like, let let you figure some of that stuff out, and then we'll talk about if you still want to fight. And it's like, if, you, if you're the UFC, how do you give him more fights now? And then, how, what are you saying, like, if you don't? If you're like, well, okay, well, we draw the line at seven in a row. With also a restraining order. Yeah. It seems like the UFC, which has always been a company with kind of like a myopic focus on mixed martial arts and sometimes to the detriment of outside the cage stuff, has only gotten worse. Like we talked at length about bringing Greg Hardy in and like promoting him as though... Uh, there's no way or reason that anyone could possibly second guess that decision. You're putting BJ Penn out there when you really have no reason to, when he's got all this stuff going on his, in his personal life. Uh, it, it just, you'd like to see the UFC be a little bit more sensitive to, to, to life issues, but at the same time, you know, consider, consider the sources, I guess. Like it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. And in terms of just like continuing to feed BJ Penn fights, like, obviously, there's an ugly side to that, and I wonder how much of it is just that we are now in an era where, like, well, you can't cut BJ Penn because one FC or Bellator or somebody would sign him, so if he wants to fight, you might as well get him these fights. I don't know. I mean, hey, if he wants to fight at this point, let him do it somewhere else because this is Yeah, and maybe it's, we're it's at a that bummer, point man. now. Well, we were at that point, I think. I, I understand what you're saying, but yeah, because it's... You do not want to... It's already kind of a difficult thing at times to be a fan of professional fighting because we understand the damage that happens. We understand that it's kind of like an inherently exploitative business. It's dangerous. It's risky. There's a cost to be paid that people are not really necessarily open and honest with themselves all the time about. 
And so there's already this stuff that you kind of have to turn your brain off a little bit to enjoy this stuff. But then when you see fights like this one, it's almost impossible to just sit back and watch it and enjoy it. Yeah. Was I the only one that when I saw BJ Penn uh, have the Hawaiian flag upside down behind him in the corner? Was I the only one who was like a distress signal? Yeah, I was like, is BJ Penn's corner trying to send us a message right now? Well, putting the flag upside down to signal that uh, there's there's some SOS stuff going on there. And see, the thing too with him talking about before the fight, like I'm here, I'm gonna I'm gonna be back on top, I'm gonna get the belt back, and it's like. Man, and I wrote a column about it that, that Michael Bisping, who I'm sure did not read it beyond the headline, got all mad about. But everybody, I think, when they heard that, were like, this is distressing. Because no, you're not going to get the title back. Like, if you were more realistic and you were saying, like, hey, I still love to fight, and I think I still have some good fights in me, and I, I don't want to stop yet. Even if then if people disagreed with you, they'd be like, well, hey, I guess so. Like, what are we going to tell the guy? Like, if you want to do it, we, we can't tell you, like, no, we don't. We we're sad, so you don't get to do it. And yet, when he says something like that, you're like, "Man, we all know. Michael Bisping know. Everybody know. Anybody who would put BJ Penn in the cage with Khabib Nurmagomedov should be brought up on charges. Everybody knows that's true. Yeah. And so, you wonder, like, where's the what's the disconnect happening here? Like, is he saying what we want to hear, or what he thinks we want to hear, or? Does he just need to keep telling himself this? Because he's been this guy for so long, he doesn't know how to be another kind of guy. Don't you think... Well, I mean, it would be hard for him, I think, to keep telling himself that in the wake, wake of his seventh loss in a row to Clay Guida. Because it's not yeah. like Clay Guida's about to be the champion, right? Like, it, it's not Habib versus Clay. It's not the <laughs> right. next matchmaker right. thing we're going to do. And like, But I, don't you think that you have to tell yourself that? Well, it's like the, the the amazing thing about Rose Namajunas that I was talking about. Like, she appears to kind of have one foot out the door, and yet she's out here competing at the highest possible level. I think it'd be so hard to, like, be BJ Penn and, like, uh, you know, come out for this fight with a different fighting stance than we've seen him in his last few fights. Like, clearly doing a lot of work in the gym to try to get this thing straightened out. Uh, don't you think it would be hard for him to do that at 40 years old if he was like, well, like, I know deep in my heart, like... I'm the, a shell of my former self. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm sure it's tough. It's tough for anybody. You know, it's not like you wake up every day and reassess your entire view of yourself, your entire self-identity based on who you are that day. It's all like, you know, these big, like sedimentary layers yeah. of like who you are is built upon like who you were. And so you're, if, if you're that guy for so long, and you have that kind of spirit that he has, and you had that drive to go and be as good as he was in the first place, I'm sure that it's really difficult to get used to the idea that you're not that guy anymore, and you're not that guy because of the natural processes of time. Yeah. It's not just that like you need to tweak something in your training or you need to go to a different gym. Like, it, it's not a fixable problem like that. Like Those days are gone, and they're never coming back. I mean, that's the, th the thing about aging for everybody. Like You're not prepared for it because you've never done it before. And so, like, then when it starts to happen, you ha everybody is going through it for the first time. You have to learn how to adjust to it. And what it seems like we're seeing with him is that he's kind of refusing to go through that process. He's just saying, like, no, I can still be that guy. I still am that guy. And everybody else is saying, no, you're not. 
In the last five minutes here, a couple of fight bookings that I wanted to touch on. Maybe we can talk about them more at length in either the live chat or the power hour later this week. But I just wanted to give a nod to Donald Cerrone versus Tony Ferguson being added to UFC 238. That's going to be June 8th at the United Center in Chicago. And Nate Diaz versus Anthony Pettis, uh, August 17th at the Honda Center in Anaheim. Ben, uh, which one of these is more interesting to you? Which one do you want to talk about in the like five minutes that we have left? Uh, Donald Cerrone versus Tony Ferguson. That's yeah. that man. It's I, just madness, right? It's pure in terms of like just the kind of fight it's going to be. Yes, it's going to be absolute pure madness in the best possible way. Yes. Assuming that everyone is right and yeah. good and good to go. I was going to say, I hope that it's there's no actual madness. Right. <laughs> I felt like I needed to make that clear that yeah. when I say it's going to be madness, I meant it's going to be a wild fight. Yeah, I don't see how it's not a great fight and. A super relevant fight. Yeah. I mean, I think, you see, Diaz versus Pettis, I'm like, all right, that's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting. But I don't know, necessarily know what you do with the winner from that. I don't know that you can say what the clear stakes are. Uh, Donald Cerrone versus Tony Ferguson right now. Man, whoever comes out of that, you got to give that guy a title shot. Yeah, it's one of those uh, situations where, once again, I feel like the UFC came in and like took a sledgehammer to the idea of Cerrone versus McGregor. And instead made it more awesomer because like as a fight, I think I would way rather watch Cowboy Cerrone fight Tony Ferguson than Conor McGregor. And it's kind of more meaningful in terms of the landscape of the lightweight division. And on top of all that, it's kind of like a huge chance for Cowboy Cerrone. Yeah, a guy is. who is, uh, you know, as great as he has been throughout his career, lets down in these big spots and has lost to a lot of the. Uh, really great fighters that he has come up against. If he managed to beat Tony Ferguson, and you got to think if ever there was a time, you know, coming back after this delay with the personal stuff that Tony Ferguson has had going on, like if Cowboy Cerrone could get this win and establish himself as something approaching a number one contender at 155 pounds, that would be like a storybook ending, if this is what it was, to the Cowboy Cerrone legacy. Like Michael Bisping style almost, where Bisping... You know, obviously he went up, uh, and or like he he, he lucked into the uh, into the fight against uh, 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 Rockhold. Yeah, Luke Rockhold. But at the same time, like if if Donald Cerrone was able to put himself in that position, I think you would have to include it as one of the great like uh, climax to a career that we've ever seen. Also, you want to talk about a fight that's a couple of weirds mobiles. Oh, Two yeah. different kinds of Weirdsmobiles here. Weirdsmobiles collide. 90 degrees opposed, 180 degrees opposed Weirdsmobiles yeah. about to fight. What about Nate Diaz and Pretty Tony Pettis? A couple of, uh, I saw someone refer to it as two of the first families of mixed martial arts about yeah, to throw down. Yeah, which bad. I was like, yeah, that's right. That's yeah, right. No, I'll definitely watch that fight. Always, though, when I hear Nate Diaz attached to a fight booking, I'm like, well, I'll wait and see if that really happens. Yeah. I think it was Trent Reinsmith on uh, Twitter was like, it's surprised that Nate Diaz has not shot down, shot this down yet. Yeah. Maybe he was waiting for a better time. Yeah. Maybe he didn't have his phone on him and, or he deleted Twitter off. Maybe of his he doesn't phone. even know about it yet. Yes. <laughs> when he finds out, he's going to be pissed. All right, well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week uh, to look ahead to what do we got going on here. I don't even have the MMA schedule in front of me. It's going to be crazy, whatever it is. But uh, as for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. We're looking at uh, UFC on ESPN plus 10. Rafael Dos Anjos versus Kevin Lee. It's going down to Rochester. The Blue Cross Arena. Okay. Grand idea of them all. And the Blue Cross, like the health insurance people, they sponsor an arena. 